0: Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hey there, this is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project. Today I'm going to share with you an interview with Julie Bradshaw Grigla. Julie is the mother of six children under five years old. She and her husband achieved their first pregnancy with the help of fertility treatment and gave birth to triplet boys. When the triplets were only five months old, Julie became pregnant spontaneously with twin girls who were followed not long after by a baby boy. Julie's journey has carried her through many unexpected challenges, but she has depended on revelation and patience as she has navigated the abundance of motherhood one step at a time. Her own mother passed away unexpectedly while Julie was in graduate school before her marriage. Julie has learned how to turn an isolated morning into a connection with her mother and with God, both of whom she feels increasingly guiding her as her children grow older.
1: I'm number nine of 11 kids, and I have seven older brothers and one older sister and then two younger brothers. So we grew up in a 1,500-square-foot house in San Diego. Wow. (laughs) So, you know, we were on top of each other a lot we had a very like minimalist house right like my mom didn't do a lot of kitschy things we had house plants that were on top of our piano and a coffee table with like a lamp and then we had family pictures on the walls but literally there was like nothing in the house and I thought oh well, my mom just doesn't like stuff which was true but The truth was that she just had so many people in the house that she just couldn't have Mm -hmm. (laughs) anything, you know. So I always marveled. I'm like, gosh, my mom always kept our house so clean. But I realized that, like, half of that was that she just didn't have
0: anything (laughs) she had to clean. (laughs) Did you plan on having a big family when you were growing up?
1: Well, so it sort of cycled for me, right? When I was in sixth grade, I was chosen to speak at my commencement because I had written an essay with the prompt, What the Future Holds for Me, and I had written that I wanted to be a mother and that being a mother was the most noble thing that you could do, one of the hardest jobs, you know, at at the tender age of, like, whatever you are in sixth grade, what, 11 or 12, Like, I really felt, like, on a really basic level, the love that my mother had for us and for what she did. Of course, as I went through puberty, those feelings became, like, much more complicated. I started having dreams for myself. I wanted to go to New York City. I wanted to go away to college. I wanted to do all of these things. And my parents were just not super supportive because... They're like, well, why do you need to do those things? You should just want to be a mom. That's it, you know? And and it was super frustrating for me because cause then, because they were telling me, well, we don't want you doing any of these things, then I started being really critical of the path that my mother had taken. Like, You, know, you never did anything, and you didn't go to school, you didn't, you know? And I remember we had it out one day. I was basically saying, I don't know. whatever I was saying, she took as criticism. And she said, you know, you really hurt my feelings when you constantly are saying that you don't want to be just a mother. That's that's all I've done with my life. And for you to say that that's not good enough after I've dedicated my life to that. And it was the first time my mom had really been, I'm sure that I had hurt her feelings for years before then. But when she finally like told me how I made her feel, I felt horrible, I felt horrible. And I said, that was probably in my mid twenties. And I had sort of, you know, decided I didn't really want to get married. I really just had all these other things that I wanted to do. And it was the first time that i had really reevaluated what I wanted out of my life. Because at that point I had just started graduate school and I was, Living in D.C. and was finally getting the life that I had wanted, that my that I had felt like my parents had denied me of. But then to have my mom sort of like rein me in, it it, it was just it was just an interesting turning point for me. But it was complicated because I was single and I didn't have a lot of dating prospects because I was I was in graduate school full time and I was working full time and. I barely had time to sleep, let alone like even think about boys. So it was like a it was a very slow shift for me. So when I was younger, I always thought, Oh yeah, I wanted nine kids and then in my twenties I was like, I don't want any kids and then <laughs> when I when I when I got married, I I'm like, I know I should want to have kids, but I kind of don't want
0: to have kids.
1: <laughs> And I really wasn't even Honestly, it wasn't even until I almost lost the triplets that I realized how badly I actually wanted to be a mother and that me saying that I didn't want kids was really really me afraid of saying yet again that I wanted something and it was going to be denied me, if that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Tell me about your mom. You had this this kind of tricky relationship with her as a teenager, typical, right? And as a young adult going off and finding your way in the world. And then you lost her quite young before you were even married. Yes. Sorry. Um,
1: We're coming up on eight years on the first. And even though we had, you know, we had rocks, rocky points in our relationship, we really had, um, a relationship I think that most daughters don't get to have with their moms. I'm realizing in the eight years since she's been gone and talking to friends about her and about our relationship, how unique things were for us. Um, they closed campus for lunch when I was in high school and I had been going home for lunch for three years. I had nobody that I ate lunch with during the I mean, I had friends, but like, you know, I didn't even know where any of my friends sat for lunch. And my mom, she, on the days that she could, we would go meet at the edge of campus and we would sit on this grass patch together and she would bring me lunch and we would sit and we'd chat. And, and then when the bell rang, I would go back to class. And it didn't even seem weird to me that I just thought it was awesome that my mom was willing to bring me lunch and sit and chat with me for a few minutes. And I didn't even worry that like people might think it was stupid or lame because she was my mom, but she was my friend. Even when I moved to D.C., I pulled out of the driveway and I think I cried almost all the way to Arizona. And I don't think my mom ever really stopped crying after I left. But, you know, we talked every day. We we um, instant message, you know, all the time. And, you know, we were just really, really close. I took her out of the country for the, her first time in the other than Mexico. Um, you know, we went to England together and then the next year we went to India together. And the thing that was interesting (laughs) was that, so she died in the MTC. You knew that, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. So she and my dad were on their way to serving in Belgium and it was going to be the most disconnected I had ever been from my mother. And I was so nervous about not being able to talk to her every day or even once a week, you know? I mean, this is eight years ago, like, international community, you know, FaceTiming and Skype and whatever, they weren't really, like, a thing back then. So I was really nervous about how it was going to go. But I remember writing in my journal, (laughs) so so naive of me, of, like, I'm excited to see what these 18 months will bring where I'm not in constant communication with my mother. <laughs> and, and after she died and I went back and found that, I was like, I take it back, I take it back. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know what it's like without her. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I, I want to come back to that, but to continue your story for a minute, what did you get your graduate degree in and what were you doing at the time that, that all of this happened?
1: So I moved out to D.C. thinking I needed to get away. I needed to do something new and be on my own. And so I lived there and worked for a year as a legal secretary, which I had done. Um, That's how I put myself through college. So I went out there and got residency, saved up money, and then I went to George Mason. I studied English literature. Um, As part of that, I studied two summers in England. I mean, it was just like was idyllic. And then I finished and I really had like no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I stayed working at the law firm. <laughs> and when all of this went down, I'd actually started another master's program in education. I'd finally decided to put down roots in Virginia and I was going to start my teaching career. Like, okay, this is ridiculous, but I'm like, I'm going to buy a queen-size bed because I've been sleeping in a twin my whole life. And I'm like, that's it. I'm buying a good, expensive bed. I'm staying in
0: Virginia.
1: (laughs) 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 And um, so I was in the middle of that master's program when my parents left on their mission. And I had just started my second semester of coursework. When I got the phone call from my dad that my mom was not doing well, that she had passed out in the cafeteria. He'd taken her to the hospital. They'd admitted her and they didn't really know what was happening, but that it was, you know, it was fairly serious. And after her surgery, when I got on the phone with her and she could, she was barely coherent. I was like, that's it. And I hung up the phone and I called my brother. I got a plane ticket and I was out on the next plane the next morning. And from the time that she was admitted to the hospital to when she died was only about a week, I think. Mm. I never could have married Dave without, this is horrible, I could never have married Dave without losing my mom because I I never would have been brought down low enough to seek help. And my face was so damaged after my mom died that, Heavenly Father knew that I couldn't, I, he, he knew that I didn't have the strength to be on my knees and ask him for help, and so he sent me to this counselor who got me on the right path. Also, I had to relearn all of those lessons from a parent. I was like, oh, man, but that's how it is, right? You, like, master something in one phase, and then the Father's like, good you know, let's put a rubber stamp on that. No, let's apply it to phase. Two. <laughs> Time for your black belt. Oh, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, so
0: let's talk about your mothering journey. It's been a surprising one for you and Oof, for Dave, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> you've, I mean, you've dealt with a broad spectrum of challenges, um, beginning with infertility. And that led you to seek fertility treatment that then, well, you tell me the story. Tell me from the beginning, what were your discussions around kids and then how did it unfold?
1: So the last day of our honeymoon, we went to these beautiful hot springs in Costa Rica and we knew that we were heading in the car back to San Jose to catch our flight home and begin real life as a married couple. And we started talking about of what we wanted for ourselves. And we had before we'd gotten married, we were like, okay, beyond birth control, I'm like, I want to be married for at least a year, because I mean I barely knew him, you know, from the time I met him to when we get got married, it was five months. But I knew that I had I knew that I knew him, if that makes sense. Like we knew each other, but we didn't know each other. And so I wanted time, but as we were talking it became very clear that we were not to wait. I didn't know why. Neither one of us knew why, but as we were talking, we felt really strongly that there were three spirits who were anxiously waiting to come to our home. And we were so excited about it that we were like, why would we wait? Why would we wait? And so we came home. I went off of birth control and nothing. And I was having some pretty severe abdominal pain. at at the same time. And we really didn't know. We thought I had celiac. We were taking all of these blood tests and nothing was adding up. And I remember distinctly, I was laying there awake and all of a sudden I realized Dave is awake next to me. You know how you can just tell like, oh, he's not asleep anymore. He's awake. And then all of a sudden I hear him say, I know what's wrong with you. And I was like, Humma, a what? <laughs> He's like, I finally put all the pieces together about why we can't get pregnant, why you're having abdominal pain, why you're having all these blood sugar issues. So he diagnosed me with polycystic ovarian syndrome. He got me on the right medication. I, a lot of, all of my symptoms started resolving, but we still couldn't get pregnant. And so we tried like the first round of fertility stuff, which is you know, Clomid. And we did that for six months and nothing. And so then we finally decided to see a reproductive endocrinologist and he gave us the plan and we followed the plan and we got pregnant and then I miscarried. People are like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, listen, like we got pregnant. We didn't even think that would happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we took, we took a month off to let my body sort of recover And then at the end of the summer, we're like, okay, let's go for it. And so I took my round of medication, and then we did the insemination, and we turned up pregnant. I was excited, but terrified. (laughs) Because, you know, I had all these ideas. Like, I'm like, okay, I really, I would love to have... You know, if not a home birth, then I would like to have, like, a natural birth and a birthing suite. You know, I had all these ideas of, like, I was reading books on, like, meditating through childbirth. And, you know, it's really what I wanted. And I was supposed to run the St. George Marathon. And I woke up and I was so sick. I was so sick. And I'm like, David, I'm only, like, seven or eight weeks pregnant. And... I cannot believe how sick I am. And he goes, well, let's go down to the clinic and take a look. So we went down to the clinic and we got all set up and he turns on the ultrasound machine and all of a sudden I'm like, there's two sex. And I'm like, we're having twins. I'm so excited. I'm like, okay, let's put the little hitch in my like natural birthing plans, but we can totally do this. And he is just silent. I'm like, you're not saying anything. And he's like, um, it's not twins. And I'm like, no, I see two sacks right there. And then he focuses on the bigger of the two sacks. And all of a sudden I was like, oh no. <laughs> I burst into tears. I was devastated. I don't even feel bad that I feel devastated because I think that now knowing as many triplet moms as I know is like a very normal reaction to have. <laughs> and Dave was thrilled. I mean, he's like, these are the three spirits we felt at the end of our honeymoon. And I'm like, I didn't want them to come all at once, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so we immediately got on with the Hyrus and the OB and I was getting monitored every couple of weeks. And I was made Dave promise that I could have a tummy tuck if my skin didn't go back after <laughs> getting so big, you know, We had all these things for him to help me feel. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I don't know if I even want to be a mom. Like, do I really want to do this? And, and and I think I was so afraid of losing the pregnancy that I really did not let myself get attached. And at well, like 18 and a half weeks, our MFM said now the fluid is measuring a little bit alarmingly between your identical twins. And I had already read about twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome because I knew I had identicals. I knew it was a possibility. I think we got one more day of measurements And then he's like, it's definitely going in that direction. But until you like cross over, we can't really do anything. Well, then two days later, I went into labor. I was at 19 weeks. They rushed me back for an ultrasound and I was funneling. And Dave just was ashen because in his mind, he's like, we're going to lose the baby. But he didn't want to say anything to me because you don't tell a 19 week pregnant lady with triplets that like, She's probably gonna lose them, right? <laughs> so they they go into like emergency measures. They start me on Mag. They schedule a circlash for the next an emergency surclash for the next morning. When I woke up from my surclash surgery, David was kneeling at my bedside, sobbing, and I'd never seen him really cry like that before. And he was praying that God would spare our children. And it was only then that I knew like there was a very small chance that they would survive that I would carry them to term so as soon as they got me stable they we put a love seat in the back of the minivan that we had just purchased (laughs) and Dave drove me to Los Angeles to have surgery to save my twin boys and when we got there and they ultrasounded me they basically said that my little Christian was about 24 hours from dying. If he if we didn't if we didn't have the surgery, he wasn't going to make it. And even if we did have the surgery, there was only a 50/50 chance that he would make it. So the next day we had the surgery and I spent the night in the hospital because they basically said if you can if the baby lives through the night, then you will probably be able to carry him a few weeks longer. And that was the worst night of my pregnancy. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was all alone in this Bow County Hospital in Los Angeles on the labor and delivery floor, where they didn't even want me, and they kept trying to steal my IV. I mean, it was just horrible. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was horrible. And I realized in that moment, I was like, Heavenly Father, I want to be a mother, and I want to be a mother to these boys. And all night, that's what I prayed. I wasn't at a point of praying regularly yet at this point, because I was still only a couple of years out from my mom's death. And I really wasn't sure that like, if I prayed God wasn't going to do what he wanted to do anyway. Like I, you know, I, even though I had been praying my whole life, I totally misunderstood like the whole point of prayer. Right. I mm-hmm. I thought it it could like, if I prayed hard enough that God would give me whatever it was that I was praying with so much faith for. And the next day we had our ultrasound and, heart was completely back to normal. I delivered at 30 weeks. My big boys, big boys, three pounds and three and a half pounds, they were in for, in the NICU for six weeks. And then Christian was in for, um, he was in for eight weeks. But now they're four years old and they never stop talking,
0: you know, so. So who was who was your village through all of that you know especially with the long nicu stays who was taking care of your family i mean my dad was in town my dad had moved up here by then
1: but really i mean i was so new to st george and i was so bad at making friends <laughs> i guess i had i guess i had ward members that sort of cycled through the nicu everybody was like super afraid of overwhelming me in the nicu And when I was finally able to go back to church, I was so weak after my C-section. But when I was finally like well enough to be able to go back, they were like, oh, we've wanted to stop by. I'm like, oh my gosh, please come by, hold a baby, please, please. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They need to be held. And I can't hold, like I would hold all three of them whenever I could, but you know, it was hard. It was long, long days. Trying to give skin to skin, and anyway, so mm. then, once the word got out, then there were a handful of ward members that came regularly and actually, now that I think about it, those are like the ladies that they're my people. they all had their kids all grown up and out of the house, and so they had time to come and and they're still like the ladies that come over and visit and come sit mm. with us at church and I didn't realize until then that. Like the way that you form bonds with people is by letting them serve you. And sure, could I have held all the babies by myself all the time? Sure. But it was better for me to have these ladies come and spend their time holding my babies, bonding with my babies, bonding with me. So that when I was home from the hospital and I was putting out pleas on Facebook of, like, everybody's crying and I'm home all alone. Somebody please come help me, you know. And Mm -hmm. they'd show up at my front door and they'd come and hold a baby and they'd, you know, send me to bed or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. If you could give one piece of advice to the compassionate service leaders out there listening to this, what did you need them to do? (laughs) Did you want people... To just call you up and say I'm coming over. No, I just wanted them to show up
1: because if they had called me, I would have said no, we're fine, we're okay. But it was when it was when they were listening to the spirit and they followed a prompting of like we should stop by and see the Griglas. I would open the door like in tears because things had just started falling apart and my postpartum depression was probably like a solid six months after the triplets were born, which was very complicated because by that point I was pregnant with the twins. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, the first, the first two years of motherhood were really, really, really hard. We we hired Dave's aunt to take nights, four nights a week so that we could get a few hours of sleep so that we wouldn't go crazy um, with the triplets. So that was great. But by the time the twins came along, we were at a point in our lives where we're like, we really should be doing this on our own. But I looked at pictures from the girl's baby blessing the other day and I look horrible. And (laughs) I just think about how tired I was and how wonderful it would have been if somebody had said, I'm going to come sleep on your couch and why don't you leave one of the babies with me, the non-nursing baby, and you just keep the nursing baby. And I mean, that would have been, like really really great (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know meals finding a way to kidnap an overwhelmed mom to take her to lunch or to get her nails done you really just have to like either know the person really well or be praying really hard to know what to do because Mm -hmm. I was so exhausted that most of the time I didn't even know what I needed Mm-hmm. enough to ask for help because I was a first time mom I had no idea what I was even supposed to be doing and then I'm exhausted and have three very premature very tiny babies anyway it's it's all a blur
0: when you found out you were pregnant with your twins your triplets were five months old how did you feel mm-hmm. did you feel the same way that you felt when you found out about no. the no
1: no because when I was pregnant with the triplets I was probably 15 weeks pregnant with the triplets I don't talk in my sleep at all. But my husband woke me up in the middle of the night and I'm like, "Why are you waking me up? I was just asleep." And I you know, I couldn't get comfortable. And he's like, oh, "I thought you were having a bad dream." And I'm like, "What made you think that?" He goes, "Well, you were yelling, no, no, no." <laughs> and I and I started laughing. And I said, "David, my what I was dreaming about was that we had just found out that we were pregnant with twin girls and the boys were fifteen months old and he goes, Honey, that is not a dream. That is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and so after the triplets were born, we thought, Well, we'd like to have one more and it took us so it took us eighteen months with fertility to get pregnant with the boys. We're like, We'll just we'll just let what happens happens and if nothing happens in a year then we'll look into fertility again but i really don't want to do fertility because i really don't think i could handle another set of multiples which by the way you should never say out loud <laughs> <laughs> because it's going to happen right so when i i had this wave of nausea and i'm like no there's no way and then that night, Dave's like, honey, you are glowing today. And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> I had told him that I felt nauseous, nothing. I'm like, that's it. I'm taking a test. And I went in and took the pregnancy test. I totally expected it to be negative. Oh, Meredith, you know how many negative pregnancy tests I've taken? <laughs> and then I looked down and it says pregnant. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and, and then I started doing the math and I'm like, twin girls. And I walked out and I handed the test to Dave. He looks at me, he goes, is this a joke? It's not a joke, honey. And he just looks at me and he goes, it's going to be twin girls, isn't it? And I said, yep. And so we just sort of braced ourselves for it. And we did the ultrasound. It was twins. They're like, it's twins. We're like, we know. (laughs) Then they did the gender scan. It's girls. We know. (laughs) We know. And so I really feel like the Lord prepared us for every single one of our pregnancies, because if I hadn't known way, way, way beforehand, I really would have felt like a victim, you know, and instead I just felt God's love. You make all sorts of promises with God when you want something really bad, right? Start bargaining. But we really felt like when we said in our prayers, Heavenly Father, we will take as many spirits as you have to send to us. We'll take as many as you, as many as you want. We'll take them because they, we realize now that it it they're, they're a gift from you. There is, you know, this is clearly out of our hands. The girls were born, you know, five weeks early. They spent like two and a half days in the NICU. They came home with me and that whole first year of their lives, I don't really remember. We were adding on to our house. Dave was getting slaughtered at work. I mean, we just were in survival mode. And probably, like, four months into it, we are at this family reunion in Moccasin. We're, like, walking down the street. We're feeling, like, really good about our lives. The boys, they're sitting in the wagon. I'm baby-wearing the girls. And I'm like, this is it. This is our family. And immediately, oh, Meredith, it was, like, it was like there was somebody standing next to me. It was like, Julie, there's one more. It's a boy. His name is Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> <No>! <laughs> <laughs> and I told that to Dave and he goes okay I'm like really he goes well yeah not right now <laughs> He's like but you know I think we'll know when <laughs> and he was right we knew when and but then we couldn't get pregnant and we had to do fertility again and it was terrifying I had to I had to like really have faith in that voice that there really was just one and Mm -hmm. so we went ahead we did the ultrasound and it was just one Mm -hmm. and then we did the gender scan and it was a boy and so of course we named him Jonathan and I prayed Heavenly Father is this it because my pregnancies they were getting harder and harder and harder and I was like is this the last baby and it was like overwhelmingly yes this is the last baby your family is complete they're all here
0: how have you had the courage and the faith to do what you've done with these children? Like, what has been your strength?
1: I mean, really, it has been having to live with, live by the Spirit. There really is no other way. We have been through crucible after crucible after crucible you know, having to let go and realizing that I needed a nanny. That was the first hurdle that I had to overcome. And then, like, realizing that my kids were just going to be a disaster in church. Like, that was the second hurdle that I had to <laughs> overcome. And, and then people started, like, getting up and bearing their testimonies about how if the Griggles can get here, then I can get here. I can be here <laughs> if they can be here. And I'm like, okay, okay, we'll see. We'll still come. <laughs> you know, but it was, it was really hard. And then it was letting go of my house. I like a clean house and I just had to let go of that because I was spending all of my time cleaning and none of my time, like none of my happy hours with my children, rearing my children, focusing on the things that they that they needed from me. And, and really, honestly, like prayers, scripture study, any sort of meaningful, spiritual, whatever, has like totally gone by the wayside. But I really did not feel any condemnation from God because I knew that he knew that I was just barely holding it together and that I was like praying in my heart. (laughs) But like the second that I saw my bed, I'm like, the heart is willing, but the body is, I just fall into bed. And that was Mm. it. But really in the last probably four months, we have really been through the ringer spiritually. And we realized that God was, he was saying, it's time, it's time, you are stable enough, you have got to stop just lying by the seat of your pants spiritually, and it's time for you to be purposeful in your study, in your child rearing, in your communion with me, because things are just going to get harder with your kids, and you're not going to make it without me. And, you know, it's a hard conversation to have with your spouse, There's like a lot of resistance from both of us because it was going to require, you know, growing pains and changes. But we knew, we really knew we were having some issues with the kids. And I, I just, I said, David, I don't have my mother to call and ask her what to do. And I didn't really have anybody that, like, that I really trusted. Margaret Nadal was in our ward and She was a former young woman, general young woman's president, and she was probably the closest figure to my mother that I have had in my life since my mom died. Like, as far as like similar parenting, she had seven boys. I mean, she knows like the rowdiness of a boy house. And, you know, so I would call her occasionally, but we were just at a loss. And so we said, okay, that's it. We are going to hold each other accountable. We are praying morning and night. We are attending the temple at least once a month. We are, you know, we are reading our scriptures. We are making the spirit a priority in our home. It has wrought miracles. I pray in the morning and I get on my knees and I don't even know which kid is going to float to the surface that day. But the second that I hit my knees, it's not the same as having a prayer in my heart. I am, I mean to the Lord in humility and waiting for him to tell me which one of my kids needs me the most that day and what they need from me. It has been remarkable. I mean, I don't think I've yelled at my kids in two weeks. There is just a different feeling in our house. And I feel my, I feel my mother near. I know that my mother is teaching in the spirit world. I know that she is busy doing other things, but I also know that there is nothing in this universe that could keep her from being the ministering angel to her children. Once I stopped with the narrative of my mother left me, my mother is not here, I'm all alone, and instead started the narrative of my mother is my ministering angel. And if I will listen, she will tell me what I need to do. I mean, everything changed. I mean, I don't feel overwhelmed by motherhood. I feel tired because I'm engaged and and mothers are tired. But I don't feel the crushing, like, inadequacies of being a mother. I don't feel the loneliness. I feel sustained. I have finally gained a testimony in the last few months of what it is I'm really doing
0: well, Julie, I think that's a really wonderful spot to end the interview, even though I would love to, like, delve into <laughs> what is life <laughs> like.
1: <laughs> let, me, let, me just, let me just tell you this. Dave and I have coined the term industrial parenthood. So <laughs> when, when we had six kids in diapers, if one kid got their diaper changed, everyone got their diaper changed. If one kid was eating Every kid was eating. If one kid was taking a nap, every kid had to take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just the way, that was just the way it is. And it was the only way to make it work. People were like, wow, you guys are like, you guys are efficient. And we're like, we are a machine. (laughs) (laughs) And that is, and, and we've had to like individualize things more the older they get. And that's where. Heavenly Father was like, okay, now that they're not like all babies, now that their personalities are showing through, you really, you really got to get it together. You're going to need my help. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that that's really where it's come in. But like, it really is just an assembly line. Everybody get, everybody wears the same thing. All the boys wear the same thing. All the girls wear the same thing. I do laundry twice a week, and everything gets folded into sets. And I don't care if that's not the shirt that you want to wear. That's the shirt that's in the <laughs> slot for Monday, you know? <laughs> when you can start folding your own clothes, you can wear whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's basically what my life looks like. the The message that I, just in closing, that I would want to pass on to mothers who are struggling with their purpose, with where is the glory in the puke and the poop and the days without showers and whatever, you have to give your life over to a life of consecration. Like you really have to gain a testimony that like this really is God's work and glory and that it could not happen without us. To bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, mothers have to exist. And mothers have to teach their children and teach their children the gospel, but also teach them to say please and thank you and to recognize that they're probably going to fail like 50% of the time, but they will get there. <laughs> but you really, like, you really have to take the long view. It's part of your temple covenant is to live a life of consecration to the building up of the kingdom. And this is it. This is at the very core. And that has been my journey of the last four years of motherhood is trying to arrive at, at that point not only being okay with it, but being a missionary for it.
0: If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.